0: Welcome fellow traveler, you are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week we have a Tent Talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination.
1: Welcome back friends to another episode of uh, our Tent Talks, the interview part of the Tent Theology Podcast, where we sit down with people, authors, figures, artists, theologians, priests, all sorts of interesting people that have made themselves parent to me and I've reached out to try and get them on this program as we think about how to renew the social and political imagination. What does it look like to do something better? I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that most of us already know that the way the world is working right now is bad, that there is structural racism, there is institutional problems, there are patriarchy and sexism baked into our systems that's probably not going to be the thing that we have to try and convince our listeners of but i'm going to also go out on a limb and imagine that a lot of us despair of knowing what the alternative could be what does it look like to build systems and institutions and to be a part of this world without participating in some of those things that we've been talking about the toxic and corrupt politics what does a good politics look like which is why i wanted to reach out to azariah france williams azariah is the author of a new book that's just come out which we're going to talk about called ghost ship institutional racism and the church of england azariah is as well as an author he is also a storyteller and a performer and he is also a priest in the church of england currently serving in the city of Manchester, which Azariah is probably my favorite city in the UK. So, welcome to the program, welcome to the show, and before we go any further, tell me about Manchester. Let's set the context, Azariah. Tell me about your geographical location.
0: So, it's great to be with you all. Manchester is really a fantastic city, it's got so much energy and verb and vibe to it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the hallmarks of Manchester is that there's a natural distrust of authority and, and there is um, a sense in which people want to figure things out for themselves. And so I love that critical thinking, that fighting spirit, the solidarity. It's a place where the cotton workers, when they discovered where the cotton was coming from, went on strike and said, you know, we, we don't want to do this. Um, it's a place where the cooperative bank arose from, you know, in and around the surrounding area. But also that can go wrong too. So now at the time of recording, we are on a local lockdown because people disrupted the government on COVID. Right. <laughs> and so when we arrived at uh, the back end of May 2020, on our first day of being in our new home, someone, there was a knock on the doorbell, one of our neighbours came and said, welcome to the neighbourhood, walk straight in, shook my hand and kiss my wife on the cheek.
1: Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, come on, stop being so friendly, <laughs> Manchester. Stop it.
0: So he realised people are quite, um, they're not COVID compliant, they're quite lockdown light. Um, but I think that's, you know, part of that kind of fighting spirit of, we'll figure things out for ourselves. But what I love about that is that there's a real fierce protectiveness of the vulnerable. and a real surge of creativity expressed through the arts, and it's known as a cultural powerhouse. So I'm delighted to be here.
1: Um, I learned something of you. So full disclosure, I've read po- portions of this book before it was a proper book. I read some of the, Azariah and I have been friends for the last 10 years or so, and we bump into each other from time to time. And I did read a portion of this book, and then I've and then I, Got the proper book now, which I'm reading and I love. But I also was listening to an interview that you did on another podcast called Over the Bridge. And you talk, you're from Leeds. Is that right? I said, I yeah. I thought you were a Londoner. So here I was thinking you'd moved from the soft south all the way up to the hard, grim north. And it turns out actually you're from the hard, grim north all, the, all along. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, is it is it like a homecoming? Are you are you finding that you do you feel at home? Up in, so what up in the I north find again? is that
0: there's um, enough familiarity where I'm based yeah. in Manchester uh, That takes you back to my place of home. Okay, I don't know about yourself, but When you leave a place when you go back the association of you being there as a child uh, Yeah, it's nostalgic, but also it can feel a bit stultifying a little bit limiting and so um, so being in Manchester, I feel, I, I feel the familiar resonances of home, uh, yeah. but I don't feel the, uh, uh, the, the sense of this is where I was a, a, a little child, you know, right. this is, uh, so I'm able to engage with it in a new way. Saying that I did, um, head back to Leeds recently. And when I was there, I was able to see it with fresh eyes and it was, it was, it was fabulous. There was, um, uh, an interview, uh, of, a uh, a, a Leeds uh, media station, and they wanted to do the story of, um, of of the boy who'd gone away and like had come back and done and, and done good, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, but the fact that I was in Manchester was a slight problem. <laughs> it Didn't come quite far enough.
1: Good old tribalism re- rears its head, and the Leeds versus <laughs> Manchester City That's conflict. Right. Right. I know, I know.
0: And even though Isn't that was crazy? Weeks ago, I know it is. Even though it was weeks ago, the program has not gone out. So, oh boy
1: um... <laughs> you're not you're not the local boy done good anymore
0: if you've <laughs> no. joined
1: the wrong side that's your problem that's
0: right i'm on the wrong side of what we call the pennines um so
1: <laughs> i mean that this is a theme that comes out in your book isn't it of of constantly being kind of the uh finding a place or finding your i mean so you know you're finding your voice you've committed yourself to the Church of England, and yet you are somebody who's always seen as an outsider wherever you go. I should probably say you are a black man who works for the Church of England, and uh, you've written your book about your experience of what that's like to have adopted um, an institution which is seen popularly by even its own members as as a white institution, right? Can you tell me a little bit about what you what
0: was prompting this book so i guess uh, a couple of things um the uh the institution is is one which is global, and the church that my parents came from on the island of nevis was set up in sixteen forty three um and so you know um that was a a place where Uh, the slaves would go along to and then eventually uh, the local village around would attend that church and people say that's the oldest Anglican church in the Caribbean Uh, and so actually there's, um, you know, the understanding that my parents came from was this is a black church, (laughs) Um, you know, and uh, with some English tradition and the liturgy and the prayers and, and such, although they had white priests, so it was white priests from the upper middle classes who would come to the church and would, uh, would come and, and, and uh, spend a season, would spend some years there. In fact, most of the positions of authority were held by white people who had come over from England. So the doctor, uh, the priest, uh, the head teacher of the school, they'd all be white folks who'd, who'd come over. And over time that began to shift, but the structure and the liturgy and the curriculum stayed in place. So when you... Um,
1: okay, I don't want to get you in trouble by naming your boss, but that, by, by the way, you did name your boss, I've just realized. Yeah. So in this book called yeah. Reimagining Britain, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote uh, an interesting line about the, the, the how Exodus relates to English people. Can you tell us a bit about that? This is like a... This was a catalyst for your book, I think, or for some, for some of your book. And it I find it really was. interesting. Can I, hear, can I hear you tell it, not me? Can I hear you sure. tell So
0: Justin Welby, and I, I mention, I say Justin in particular because in this book he wrote in 2018, I believe, called Reimagining Britain. He, he begins it by saying, I'm not writing this, I'm writing this as Justin, not as the Archbishop of Canterbury, this isn't something I'm expecting is doctrine or anything like this. This is these are my thoughts, um, and so I think it's an interesting thing. He was trying to parse his role from uh, f- from his rhetoric, as it were. He um, was looking at models of community and thinking about British society, and and for his models of community, he thought about the early church, and he said also there is the uh, the theme and the motif of Exodus. He said, however, the Exodus doesn't have as much bearing for those of us who who haven't been uh, oppressed, and and he began to describe. Um, he said, you know, for for those who have been part of uh, uh, ethnic minority settings or um, those who are in the LGBTQI communities, um, uh, um, maybe it it has some purchase with them. But he said, but you know, for a lot of us, it, it doesn't, and and then he went on to say. So I was thinking, well, who does he mean by the us? Does he mean um, people whose uh, uh, you know a uh, uh, pigment equals power and privilege? And but he went on to say, you know, those in Wales or Scotland or, or Ireland, that they might find some resonance with Exodus, but it doesn't have much bearing for the rest of us. So all that was left <laughs> was white, straight English men. That was the only category that was, that was left out of his, um, about his big description. The fact that Exodus doesn't really have purchase um, in today's society.
1: Well, and, and those two little words, you and S,
0: us. Mm. It yeah. shows
1: how, to me, that to, your story there just to me just demonstrates what systematic racism is. It doesn't mean that Justin Welby is a hate-filled man who's filled with hatred towards anybody who's not white. But what it means is he just naturally uses the word us when he's talking about the church. And it's just like this kind of, it's so easy to say, and I would have missed it until you wrote that paragraph. I was like, oh yeah, us doesn't mean white men. It means (laughs) the Church of England, which by the way, if everybody who wasn't a white man left the Church of England, it would absolutely collapse. It would just Crumble. The Church of England is not filled with white men. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, and, And it was just that little word of like, oh yeah, to 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 talk about us so quickly and easily and say, oh, Exodus doesn't mean anything to us. So so what have you been doing about this? Like, how does when you try and highlight this or shine a light on this? What 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 happens as a priest in the Church of England? What happens when you start to shine a light on the word us?
0: For me, it was a a bit of a revelation. So I wrote the the chapter Reimagining Reimagining Britain uh, because um, I I, I realised that there wasn't um, a thought of me when he was sitting down and writing this, which was a a manifesto, a vision, a hope for British society. Um, But it really was... um, uh, it was it was more of a, uh, a, a speak in the book about the film Notting Hill <laughs> that in no way represented <laughs> the Notting Hill um, that I'd ever come across.
1: Shall we just and, pause here and let our listeners go and watch Notting Hill? Okay, I, let's pause. Okay. Now, welcome back. I'm, I hope you enjoyed watching Notting Hill. Uh, listeners, please, can you identify all the black people that you saw in Notting Hill? <laughs>
0: And so beginning to shine a light on it, what it does is it, um, it begins to qualify uh, your own convictions that something is amiss. Right. It begins to help you to realize that why is there the continuation of white men being in charge? So as I said, on the island where my mum and dad were, white men filled all the authority spots and it was a, it was a, it was a fun thing for them to do, to to go across to... The Caribbean islands, and to lead for a bit, you know, and to to have their sway pass on in the curriculum, and pass on the English history from the view of the conquerors. So my mum used to sing "Rule Britannia," "Britannia rules the waves," uh, without irony. <laughs> in terms, of, you know, just the, uh, the the conditioning, what she received her education. So when you begin to realise that the us isn't us, and uh, when he's saying we, he really means me you recognize that you are really outside of this particular narrative, although you are within God's larger narrative. And so how do you begin to address that gap? And so it begins to prompt questions. It begins to prompt conversations. And for me I began to look at my own story and reflect on my own story through a different lens and began to speak to others and learn that they also felt that they were out on, you know, the margins, those liminal spaces.
1: How did you collect the stories? I should say that the book is is largely a lot of of storytelling you, you tell sometimes you make up you know there's fairy st- there's fairy tales in there, there's your story, there's other people's stories. Why did you choose storytelling as your political
0: act here? So there's stories there's poetry as well, which I guess has got to you know distill stories of a form.: I chose stories I think because it was. It's one, of the, it's one of the most natural ways that I find to open people and not close people. I find storytelling to be a natural way of reaching the head through the heart. Storytelling is something I enjoy. The way my brain is wired is that I'm dyspraxic and dyslexic. And so, uh, so I come at things from a, different, from a different perspective anyway. When I was writing the book, initially I began to write it as if I were a sort of strict academic and really tried to to fit within the lines of, of of the academic rigor and really found that I wasn't succeeding and I was boring myself silly and I was missing all the end <laughs> Yeah. And then, you know, some of my, I guess, friends or colleagues are more on the activist line. And so or maybe should I try to do something that's more of an activist type thing? And And come out all guns blazing. Besides the fact I'm a pacifist, you know. (laughs) Yeah. But that didn't feel like me either. And that's been one of the things with this book, actually, is that some people have wanted to pit me against the system. You know, there's been one or two requests of people saying, as the book was getting ready to be launched, saying, why don't you demand a meeting with Justin Welby? And sit in front of him and just sort of lay out, you know, where he's going wrong and, and what this is. Uh, but that wasn't my approach either. But I, I love the artistry of words. I, hmm. you know, I, I, I love how words can be put together in a way which, uh, which can help us to more deeply um, get to the bottom of things. And so I think I chose stories for that because there were so many stories that were coming to me. In conversations through interviews as I reflected with my upon my own story as I began to write it down I found the narrative arc and I began to find ways in which those stories could unlock and those stories could diffuse as well and that's been part of the response that I've had in that people have said this is a hard read but they've been able to understand it. They've been able to empathize. So I think stories are a wonderful way to build the empathy bridge. And then if hopefully over the empathy bridge actions can follow. I mean,
1: I do think if you're a listener here and you think, Oh, uh, a book about the institutional racism in the church of England, that sounds very worthy and serious. And you might think it's some sort of academic text and it's like, it's not, it's, I'm commending it to my listeners here. It's funny. It's angry. It's poignant. It's sly. And when I was reading it, I was like, man, this doesn't sound like, like I read a lot of texts about racism and national identity and stuff. I was like, this doesn't read like those texts. And then I realized what it was. It sounds like listening to you, tell your stories in front of an audience in a pub, because you are a a performer sometimes as well. And, I was like, oh, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like Azariah telling his, his stories. And you have put that somehow into the book, and you have found a way to, to bring that out to people. Did, you, did, it, did it take a while for you to find that voice? I mean, did you, did you discover anything new about yourself while you were writing this?
0: So one of the stories which helped to make sense of the other stories was uh, last year, uh, mid-2019, I received an email from the St. Kitts and Nevis Association. And the email said, next year marks the 50th anniversary of the sinking of the MV Christina. Mm -hmm. The MV Christina was a a ferry boat between the two islands. It traveled 12 miles and made several trips every day. There's a a larger story to, to this boat because it wasn't designed very well. There were people who were bothered about the fact that they didn't think it was, it was strong enough as a boat. And mm-hmm. people who sat in the lower decks would often get their feet wet. But people would complain because at that time, St. Kitts and Nevis was, uh, was, part of, uh, was part of Britain. And so people would send letters to Whitehall, which would go ignored.
1: Mm-hmm. And Whitehall being, for my American listeners, Whitehall is the UK seat of UK government, so anyway. Yeah.
0: And so those letters would arrive saying, we're worried about this. We're not quite sure that this boat is, um, is able to do what it's meant to be doing. Yeah. And that week it had gone for some repairs. And the engineers who had done the repairs didn't complete the repairs properly. And had, had left some, 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 some panelling not quite in place. Uh, and the engineers on a later investigation, they thought the captain and crew would finish off the job the captain and crew assumed that the engineers had finished the job properly. Right. So you had this boat which already there were some question marks about it. It had gone for repairs and repairs hadn't been completed. And to add to that, the boat should only have had 155 people on per trip. But on this trip, it was the 1st of August, which is Emancipation Weekend. It's, It's the day to celebrate the abolition of slavery. Um, in, across the, the British colonies and so there are more people going back and forth for parties for festivals and things and the journey for that journey there were 330 people on board right and
1: right more than twice yeah yeah
0: and every journey it had made it was starting to act more erratically because water was, was coming into um, to the bottom okay. of the boat and part way along it tipped over and the boat sank. Only 91 people survived. Around uh, 60 or so were, was, bodies were salvaged and recognized. About 70 or so bodies were salvaged, but there were sharks in the water, so they weren't recognized. But then the remainder were left on the boat. A decision was made to, to, to leave the rest on the boat. So Every year there's a, a commemorative dive to go and see this boat. So when I received this email saying, you know, what are we going to do for the MV Christina to mark the 50th anniversary? That was a crystallizing factor for me. That was a pivot point for me to think, ah, okay, this is a thing. Because so many people, when I was talking about her book, were saying, well, if we only had more people, including black and brown people, if we only had more people in Synod, if you only had more people, Synod is, is the governing body of the Church of England, if we only mm. had more people um, who were bishops and taking senior leadership, then it would be fine. So it's just about getting more people in. But thinking about the boat, I thought, actually, it's the mm. structure that's at fault. So, wow. you know, all we'd be doing is overloading this system. And Into there's sinking more that ship. are going to suffer. Yeah. Yeah, the, the sinking ship, uh, the ghost ship. And so, so that's, that was the guiding metaphor. So that story made sense of all the others. And that, that began to take me forward.
1: What, what happens when you try and present this to people? What, what's, been, what's been happening to you when you try and speak this to places of power? Power within your own institution.
0: Well, if I give you an example of power outside the institution first, because I, one of the things that I find and feel with, with this text is that we need clergy of color, black and brown people in the Church of England, need partnerships outside of the structure in order to give them a sense of stability, in order to reinforce and reaffirm their identity and their dignity as made in God's image, because unfortunately the institution isn't able to do that. And so after the murder of George Floyd, my publishers asked me if I'd write a blog piece about it. And so I wrote this blog piece and somehow the blog piece travelled, around the place and landed on the desk of a journalist called Harriet Sherman. She is a journalist with the Guardian newspaper and she contacted the uh, publishers saying that she'd like to speak to the, um, the author of the blog piece for an article that she was doing later on that afternoon. And my publishers kept ringing me and I was with my family doing bits and bobs and I kept thinking, who's this calling? And so eventually they called and they said, in the next hour, you need to get in touch with this journalist who wants to include you in, in, in a piece they're writing, but they've got a, a deadline. So I didn't really have much time to think or prepare. I had no idea what the questions were going to be. And I felt completely exposed and really vulnerable. And I thought, oh my goodness, uh, what can I do? And so I got her number and I rang her. And as I was ringing her, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. This would be a good idea. Why don't I speak with a Caribbean accent? <laughs> 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 I, think a, I think it was a reflexive, self-protective thing. I think in some way I was, I was also trying to disguise my identity. The, the book title has A.D.A. France Williams. When I began writing the book, I, was, I felt I had to write the book but also I was scared stiff that the institution was going to crush me. Right. So, yeah.
1: Book. Right. When you stick your head above the parapet. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I was trying to avoid being identified. So I rang and said, hello dear. Hey, is that, um, is that um, Harriet? Hello, Harriet. <laughs> I hear that you would like to talk to me about um, the book I'm writing and you're interested in the blog piece that I wrote. And so Wow. She didn't, you know, she's never been in such a movie before. So she just, we just had this conversation. And the more I did it, the deeper I had to emerge into this persona, yeah. <laughs> which was a persona, but also it felt like, you know, in my mind, I was protecting myself. Right. And, and then she said to me in the interview, we'd like to um, uh, use your name in the piece. I said, well, actually, I prefer not. I prefer that you just go with A.D.A. France Williams, please. This is my author's name. Thank you very much. <laughs> and she said, well, the piece might not make it because editors prefer to have the, um, the names right. of the, uh, the contributors. I said, well, I tell you what, Harriet. Try your editor and tell the editor that the contributor is trying to protect themselves and want A.D.A. France Williams. <laughs> so she agreed to that took it to the editor and the editor said yes and so the first piece I did for the Guardian newspaper had ADA France Williams says and had my quote a couple of weeks later the publishers got in touch again Harriet (laughs) Sherwood wants to talk to you about your book now and, and to do a real piece on it and I felt excited but my heart sank as well I thought oh no I've got to I've got to resurrect Caribbean Man (laughs) (laughs) it was a real dilemma for me right? because when I was doing Caribbean Man I thought I would be tapping into some sort of authentic version of myself but I wasn't I just felt like I was doing a parody a bad parody of someone.
1: (laughs) So you began by thinking this is my this is my family, this is my parents' accent, this is my mother's accent. Yeah, yeah. But you as you were doing it, you're like, wait a second, this isn't my voice.
0: Yeah, this isn't my voice. And it partly comes because when I growing up in Leeds, I thought of myself as someone from Leeds, a Yorkshire man who had Caribbean parents. However, what I realized as I grew up is that people saw me as a Caribbean person who lived in Yorkshire. Okay.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: You know, But I realized that that didn't seem to be my voice. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I've taken a risk. This is a national journalist who, you know, has a nose for sniffing out the inauthentic and <laughs> could actually write an article just saying what a phony I am. <laughs> right. And So this was a risk. And so I called her up and I made my decision what I was going to do. So I called her up and I said hello dear Harriet it's me Azariah here and I don't usually talk like that (laughs) (laughs) but I spoke to you like that because to be honest with you I was terrified I've never spoken to the national press before and somehow thought if I could tap into my heritage to my roots it would give me some extra confidence for the The interview. And what was brilliant is that she just laughed her head off. We just laughed for about 20 seconds, both of us. And that release of laughter uh, meant that I wasn't self conscious anymore. You know, I was able to actually have a proper conversation. I was able to tap into something. And then I realized, this is who I am. You know, this is who I am. I love how you're, it's
1: like a microcosm, your own process is a microcosm of of identity and nationalism and national identity (laughs) oh my gosh it's all in what a roller coaster that story was (laughs)
0: now well give give me your analysis I'd love to hear a bit of your analysis on this
1: I uh, what I was thinking was isn't it interesting that you almost have now you're putting me on the spot here but you talked about it seems that you still you you are very vulnerable when you have to speak up against an institution an institution that likes to think of itself as really right on and kind. And the, the Church of England is not, it's, it's not the Southern Baptist Union. Where, I mean, it's not, you know what I mean? It's, it's not yeah. seen as a bastion of angry conservatism. And yet you are so vulnerable, speaking up, that you almost were forced into adopting a different persona, out of, almost out of fear of a fight or flight, yeah. you know. And I just find that fascinating. And I could see why you need actually the support of the guardian or the observer or the journalist in order to continue to tell the story you're going to tell, because you didn't feel, you don't feel safe to tell it just within amongst your own people, like using your own voice wasn't safe. And I find that really a fascinating thing in terms of when we're, we're trying to think about here about institutions and power structures and powers and principalities and stuff. I'm like, well, isn't that interesting that that the principality in which you have a home and it's my church as well. And you don't feel safe and you, and it's probably likely that you aren't, you weren't safe. You aren't safe, except that now you are a beacon, right? So people are probably being drawn to you because of this book. You're probably finding more, more voices, more like-minded people. I'm, is it, a, is, has it been attracting fellow travelers?
0: One of the incredible things was I recently had my online zoom launch of the book. And I reached out to a number of people. I think because that feeling of being out there, putting your thoughts and ideas and identity and your yourself on the line by having such a direct challenge uh, to the institution, that I really felt I need some backup here and so I reached out so my book launch featured me only a little bit I did one reading and I took part in an interview and then I asked some panelists some things well I gathered people around me who I saw as you know they were really settled in in their identity in their convictions they have they've they've uh, they've run the gauntlet themselves all of them have been through their own times of of unmaking and remaking they've Looked uh, the dragon racism in the eye, you know, mm-hmm. and survived the uh, the attack. And so I wanted some um, some veterans really to be alongside me. And so with them there, it gave me such a, a sense of uh, of solidarity. It gave me such a sense of actually, this is this is a glimpse of the alternative. This is a glimpse of what it would be like if the voices within the system were actually empowered, if the voices within the system were actually heard, these are what those voices would sound like. And can we now imagine a church which actually is the church and not just one person's mirror image of, 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 the, of, of the church? And so for me, there was, there was something, it felt like, so my back background before I was a, an Anglican, was I was in the Pentecostal church and we used to shout and holler for spiritual warfare. Uh, We used to raise our voices, pray and sing in other tongues and you know there was an endorphin release you know so we felt great. I'm not sure how much changed (laughs) but we felt really wonderful but there was there were these moments where you felt that something was shifting and something was shifting on at the launch day felt, in a, it felt like a spiritual warfare. It felt, it felt like as truth was, was spoken without fear and without the need for permission. It felt like actually there was, you know, there was a scalpel which was, you know, prodding at the, 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 the illness that, that racism can be. And so uh, yeah, so I, but again, I, I felt I needed those people around me and i drew something of their courage but also at the launch i spoke about the MV Christina and we had an active remembrance and so i really felt like i was honoring the story of those who've gone before me as well and uh, that felt really important to me well and
1: back to our original point that they were telling our us that was an us story yeah right i mean it, it wasn't it wasn't an institution going oh, uh, let's, let's give five minutes of time to those poor black people over there. It was us. It was like, we're going to remember our people. We're going to remember yeah. our church is going to do an act of remembrance. Yeah. We talk about Remembrance Sunday and, and Memorial Days and things a lot on this uh, in terms of violence. And it's, isn't it interesting? Our church is so quick to remember war and violence, but it's so slow to remember other things which are more of the life of, our, of us as an institution. Absolutely. There's also anger in your book, right? Mm-hmm. And you tell a story in your, in your book. You tell a little <laughs> anecdote where you say <laughs> that you, you talked about this book to a friend and you asked the friend, what should I do about it? And this friend said, don't be too angry. Yes. Was that person me? <laughs> it was me, wasn't it? It wasn't you. It wasn't okay. you. Because I had this memory. When I read that, I was like, oh, he's talking about me. Because I feel like I remember you talking to me about this. All right. So it wasn't me.
0: It could have been you. I think I, now you mention it. I think I do have a vague memory. But now I was thinking about somebody else.
1: I think it was me in, Le- Ca- in the Leon Cafe on Victoria Street in London. <laughs> because I was going to ask you, Ezra, I was like, what do you wish? So, you, you present this anecdote as this white guy said, Don't be too angry because anger yeah. turns people off. Let's pretend it was me who said that because I think okay, that it, right. I think I would yeah, have said sure. something like that.
0: I can't believe you said that, Stephen.
1: <laughs> what do you wish? Come on, you got me right here. What do you <laughs> wish you could have said in that moment?
0: At that time, when I had the conversation with you, I would have agreed with you. Okay. Because I really wasn't that consciously connected to my anger. I felt sad, I felt despair, I felt distress, depression, but I I didn't recognize those things as features or hallmarks of of, of anger. That was internalized. Uh, And so at that time, I, I would have agreed with you. However, through the journey of writing the book, there were one or two flashpoints where I just felt inflamed with the injustice that people had gone through. I remember one person in particular, there was a a whole uh, theological education plan to begin to put forward post-colonial theology as something that would be good for all of us. Look at the liberative theologies, not as something marginal or, or on the edges, but something that was quite core and central and this whole theological institution was set up primarily funded by the Church of England. And the first principal after they left, this new person came in, and they were told a range of things. Firstly, they were told that, you know, students were gonna be provided. Then they were told they had to find their own students. And they they were told that they had money for a number of years. Then they were told that it was only gonna be based on how many students they could get in, depending on the money that was coming in. And the goalposts kept on shifting. And what was initially a big fanfare of "we as the Church of England are doing something incredibly radical with our theological education" it became, you know, a noose around this person's neck. And when I had that conversation, for me, that was the the straw that broke the back. You know, it was like, "Whoa, oh my goodness, I can't believe," <laughs> because that's often the way it happens. The institution publicly makes a big fanfare about something; it gets all the press time all the airtime and and people pontificate. And then a few weeks, a few months later, things start to shape and change behind the scenes. Even if you have, so even if I had been drawn into the challenge, Justin Welby kind of thing, even if Justin Welby is converted and becomes an anti-racist, that still doesn't convince me that the institution is going to change. Because... um, because of the nature, of the, the, the structure of it, just a couple of layers down, someone will begin to sabotage what he says. Even if he says, you know, we're gonna do this, someone in his office, someone <laughs> somewhere else, it's going to start to undo itself. Every brick that he puts on, someone else, someone else will be taking down a brick. Yeah, so for me, there was anger <laughs> at the injustice of what people were facing began to, to brew up. But also I think as, as an artist, I found that now there is a persona that worked within the book called Brave Slave, and Brave Slave is the author of my poems. After I heard stories like the one I heard about this uh, uh, this gentleman, I would take a few breaths, sit down, and I'd see what I would write. And and some of the the uh, the poems that came out were this sort of hot, raw outpouring of of just the feeling that I was feeling in connection to the the pain that I heard that someone had gone through, pain that the structure had inflicted, brilliant people who were not allowed to flourish.
1: Thank you, Azariah. That's great. I, can, I can't recommend this book enough to people. Like, you've never read a book like this, I don't think. If you think you've read about institutional racism, you haven't read it until you read this book. Now, I'm also here with Sean, who's been patiently listening. Sean, I can tell you want to ask a few questions. You want to? What do you, what, what do you want
2: to ask, Azariah? Oh, just uh, just something short of about a hundred, two hundred thousand questions I have for you, but I'm sitting here. It, well, part of it is just, part of it is just the. I mean, I, I admire your courage and your and your taking the stand and being part of the step steps. I believe in the direction of hopefully a transformation, uh, as you said, institutionally, culturally, from an organizational standpoint. It's definitely something uh, that has been a prominent part of my whole life. I mean, not from a from a. On the recipient end, but just being aware of it and trying to understand it and really see it for what it is, and transferring that idea that it is a just a it starts with a personal belief around indifference and in hierarchy that you then create systems and it becomes a systemic thing. So as I started to understand that and recognize that, I kind of want to tie into some of the things we of all the questions I want to ask, I'm just going to do one just for the sake of time. How do you not give up hope? In the in the face of all of these things, because it seems to me where I struggle with this is I start to look over at the very institutions you're talking about, and as you said, if we change one person's mind, that's great, but if the system is still there, that just it just it just brings in the new, the new version of whatever you just moved out. So, because it seems to me like then I find myself wanting to tear down the institutions, want to tear down at the very least to their very core. You know, you maybe is just changing the name or 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 just hoping that they do better is doesn't seem to. This doesn't seem to bear the fruit that we're looking for, and then then you start to become then it becomes it starts it starts to become adversarial, which is a little bit what you're alluding to around. Well, now you become the mark of the opposition of this other thing, and that there, there's a self-preservation, no matter how how awful the institution is, it, you know, it's tradition, and this is this way it is, this livelihood. I mean, there's economics, there's so many aspects that are tied into it, outside of just you know just a bad judgment of of, of humanity, that goes so far beyond that that are these forces that are part of our lives. That, that, that move those things and keep those things in power and so then it seems like the only way that then offset that power is to meet it with equal or or, or greater force to, to to move it if it doesn't want to be moved if you know what I'm, if it, what I'm getting at and yet from a faith standpoint i find myself like you going well that's i'm not going to bear arms to, to make that happen i'm not going to commit violence uh, on behalf of that i just i definitely don't believe in that anymore so so then it becomes then but then this is who we are. These are my people. These are your. These are the people. This is where the us, and these are the institutions we grew up around. These are the places. These are the places we shopped and places that you know that that kept us safe or that we served or something like that. So all that being said, how do you? What gives you the hope to keep fighting, uh, in the in, or for the for, for for the justice that we're that we're all I think seeking in, in regards to this issue?
0: Thank you for the question. My mother's name is Elvira. Elvira is a Russian name and it means hope, so something of her story, something of her resilience. She died a number of years ago but there's something of her life, something of her pulse, something of her energy and motivation and what she faced as a pioneer um, within British society to keep on going even though her qualifications were disregarded Um, even though she wasn't able to to get very far in the career ladder even though there's so many things against her she kept on going so I think something of the resilience of people who in the move from the Caribbean to the UK felt it was just as uh, moving from one city in the UK to another because they were British citizens with British citizens passport and so they thought it's just like someone in the north of England moving to the south of England. I thought, you know, this is just, I'm moving to another part of home. And, and so I, I get a lot of strength from my mum and that generation of people who kept on going. Mm-hmm. I also realised that I now place my hope in different places. Mm-hmm. So I no longer place my hope in and with the system. Over the last 10 years of being ordained um, with the Church of England I, I've been doing that I have um, sat in many 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 meetings where I've poured out my heart my pain and someone has a clipboard and there's been a smile they've gone away with my pain and, and my pain hasn't gone away <laughs> and and so I started to place my hope in other places. So now I look for those in and around the Church of England who are committed to justice. So whether they're black, white, or brown, if they're committed to justice, well, we we can work together. We can work together. I'm part of a, uh, there's an ecumenical movement of churches called Heart Edge, which arose from a church called St. Martin in the Fields. And what I found there is it feels as if, I was a slave in the south who's made it to the north, in that with this part of the Church of England there is a commitment to justice. With this part of the Church of England, when I say things, I'm heard. I have voice, I have value, I have visibility in a way that I haven't done in my journey so far. And so my hope is, In and with those who are committed to justice, because that's where I believe God is at work. Also, I spoke earlier about being in a liminal space often within the Church of England. There are a couple of wonderful feminist scholars called uh, Hannah Ward and West, and they do this great book on liminality, and they say that when you're liminal, you can either feel marginal, so you're on the outside of the center, or you can feel like you're on the threshold pointing people to a bigger reality so my hope is that i'll be able to connect and commit with people of justice like yourselves and we can stand on the threshold and point to a greater reality something that resembles the kingdom of god and that reality is where i'm placing my hope and i trust that the church will do what it can and by the church, I mean the Church of England, but whether or not it does that, I'm going to commit to people of justice, people of Jesus, and do what I can with the gifts I have within the limits uh, that I find myself.
2: Hope, I hope you don't mind me saying I think I picked the right question. So, and <laughs> beautiful answer. Thank you very much, because now you gave me definitely a lot more hope than I was feeling a few minutes ago. So I also want to say something to the listeners real quick. Uh, there's uh, I, I got to listen to Azariah before you and Cheney McDonald did an amazing episode on the Nomad podcast. For our friends Tim, David, Jemima, Nick, and all them that do it over there in the UK as well. So if, if you like what you're listening to out there, as, a, as a, in terms of what Azariah is saying, there's a lot more about his mother, a lot more about his story that's in that uh, beautiful episode, and they do a great job of that. So I'll just throw that out there. We'll we'll put it in the show notes as well. So. Thank you so much for your great. time I'll punt over to, to my friend, Stephen. Thank, no. you, Thank you. Yeah. Cheers.
1: Thank you, Azariah. It's been really great having you on this uh, episode. I hope you can come back again one day. In fact, why don't we schedule a, a follow-up and you can tell us how, once the book has worked its way through the system, like yeast through dough, we can have a follow-up <laughs> and we can find out what's happening.
0: <laughs> that'd be wonderful. Yeah. That'd be really wonderful, you know, because um, even weeds can crack. Hard ground.
1: (laughs) Hey, that's what that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's a mustard seed, which isn't a big oak tree, it's a weed that gets into everything. Much more fun. Much more liminal. The mustard seed is way more liminal. (laughs)
0: Wonderful.
1: Thank you, Azariah. It's been a real joy and a pleasure to have you here. And uh, I wish you well in Manchester, in sunny Manchester, in lockdown, (laughs) the paradise of lockdown Manchester. I hope people aren't so friendly to you that they invade your (laughs) personal space. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well um, it'd be lovely to uh, to see you guys here sometime you know and now that, yeah. Uh, yeah that'd be great give you a big uh, hug <laughs> absolutely
1: absolutely one day all one day yeah. we will we will <laughs> yeah. have the hugs great so well to see you and uh i uh, bless everyone listening and i hope that you've found something good in this talk because i know i have and i know sean has uh, the book is ghost ship the author name is A.D.A. France Williams, and uh, it's available in all the places that you get books, published by SCM Press. and I'll leave people with that. Farewell.
0: To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.10ththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.